postcard from Dulcie to family, dated 28th March, 1981. Dear gang, how are you all keeping? I thought I should write to say hello to you. I understand that you all have done so well at school. Keep up the good work. I wrote a letter to your mum the other day. Has she received it? Must say bye now. Love, Auntie Dulcie. Do you ever think about how postcards used to be like text messages? Sometimes they were just brief greetings from your auntie, like the one you've just heard. The front of the postcard is the round dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, with the classic red double-decker bars driving past. It seems like an ordinary greeting from an aunt on holiday. Nothing on that postcard tells you that the auntie writing it was a hardened, exiled, anti-apartheid activist. Nothing suggests she was going to be brutally assassinated seven years and one day after writing the card. And nothing at all suggests that one of the nephews who received the card would pass it on to us 37 years later as part of an attempt at finding out why his aunt was killed. The past is made up of fragments. You never know which ones will turn out to be important. My name is Neo Rakajani, and you are listening to the first episode of a new podcast series by Sound Africa and Open Secrets. Before we continue, I need to warn you that this episode and the whole series deals with violent and sometimes graphic content. This series is called They Killed Dulcie, and it's a story about the life and death of Dulcie September. Soon, we'll take you to where she was killed in Paris, but before that, you need some context. This is The Scene of the Crime. Dulcie September was the ANC chief representative for France, Luxembourg, and Switzerland in the 1980s. She's the only high-ranking ANC member ever to be assassinated outside Southern Africa. Do you know her story? My guess is many of you don't. Unlike struggle heroes like Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, Chris Honey, she is not a household name in South Africa or the world. Less than two years after Dulcie's murder, Nelson Mandela would be released and the ANC would be unbanned. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy. Dulcie September fought for freedom in South Africa all her life 
but she never got to experience it. And she wasn't only murdered, she was erased. This podcast is an attempt at reversing that erasure. And the process began several years ago when the research organization Open Secrets began a journey that took them to 25 archives in seven different countries. They collected over 40,000 documents that show how people and corporations across the world propped up apartheid and made fortunes in the process. From fragments, surprising stories began to emerge. One of them is the story of Dulcy September. It's a spiraling story where bankers, spies and corrupt politicians all appear to be part of a large secret network that was essential in keeping apartheid going. And that part of the story begins at a large green locked door in the center of Paris. This is Rasmus Bits, one of the other two people telling the story with me. I'm not making film or anything, I'm making radio, so the only thing I really want is just to see what it looks like. But we'll get back to him later. Because Dulcy was more than her murder, we're going to start somewhere else. Many years ago in Cape Town, with the third person who's telling the story, journalist Nina Callahan. History is what you see when it's already over. When the events happen, they're not historical events, they're life. And the same goes for people. People are neither born as heroes or villains, they're born as babies. Dulce Yvonne September was born in Maitland on August the 20th, 1935. This is Michael Aronser. He's the oldest son of Dulcie's sister, Stephanie. And since Dulcie didn't have any children of her own, Michael's in a way Dulcie's heir. As the spokesperson of the family, he's also the logical place to begin her biography. She grew up on the Clipfontaine Mission Station, up to Standard 4, before moving with the family to Gleemore in Athlone, which is a suburb of Cape Town. But being the son of Dulcie's sister, Michael, of course, wasn't around when she was a child, and Michael himself hasn't seen his aunt since 1973. We visited her shortly before she left, and she was packing her bags. She was shushing my father out of the room and making jokes with us children as she was packing the bags and so on and so forth. Obviously at the time when we knew her, we didn't know she had just come out of prison. We didn't know what she had been through. And looking back now, you realize mm, uh, being jovial and telling jokes was kind of survival mechanism, even a defense mechanism. But of course, when you're young, you know, when you're five, six, seven years old, you don't realize that. So while Michael never really knew Dulcie in person, he has always felt her presence in his life as a distant 
but strong inspiration. To be prepared to stand up for what you believe in. Um, no matter how unpopular it may make you. And being prepared to act on what you believe in. So I suppose, in a nutshell, to have some backbone in life. <laughs> and maybe that explains why Michael has taken it upon himself to spearhead the effort of getting her case reopened. The word spearheading is probably the right, the right word. Um, I've decided to, um, to do that for her. While Michael biologically is a link to Dulcie's past, he was not born when she was formed as a person and as an activist. But he knows somebody who was one of the most intelligent people he has ever met, he says. Well, I'm Elizabeth van Aden, Betty to most. And if anybody knows what made Dulcie who she became, it is her. I think Dulcie was an ordinary person placed in a situation where she had to make a choice. Betty is now 83 years old. She lives in Heathfield, in a suburb of Cape Town, in a sunlit apartment filled with plants and books. She's slim, wears gold earrings, and is hard to hold a microphone for because she moves and gesticulates wildly as she sits cross-legged like a yogi on a dining room chair. I no longer so quickly jump to conclusions about people and things, but Dulcie's death has the ring of collusion, not just from the enemy side. More than 30 years after her murder, Betty can still only speculate about why her friend was killed. But it's clear to her that Dulcie died because of the path she chose, a path of resistance that Betty put her on many years ago. But they met before any of them had any concept of politics in Betty's home on the Cape Flats. And the sand, the sand, the sand, when that south is the blue, whoa, everything was covered in sand. It was before apartheid, but legislation was already being passed in order to separate the races. According to Betty, the intention was clear. What they really meant was, we must find a way to get all these darkies out of our pristine areas, you know. Get them, move them down to the, to the Cape Flats. And the Cape Flats, the area sand is lifeless. Dulcie's family moved to Athlone when the girls were nine or ten years old. And she was immediately drawn to the household where both the doors and the mines were more open than they were in her own home. She came there, she followed us, because we were supposed to be the clever foundations, don't you know? We're supposed to be clever. Smart is what my mother used to call it, and that was not a compliment. Betty's father was a carpenter, but he made a point of creating an atmosphere of debate in the home where everyone was welcome. When we had people visiting us, You'd invite Dulcie. When we had parties, you'd invite Dulcie. Dulcie knew that at our place, she'd be able to have a say and that people would listen to her. She also knew that no one would laugh at her if she made mistakes. 
As she was becoming a teenager, Dulcie was attracted to the open atmosphere, but maybe she was also seeking a form of safety she didn't have at home. This is Michael Aronser, Dulcie's nephew again. My grandfather was an abusive man when he had had too much to drink. And I think that relationship just crumbled. Um, I don't think the two of them ever really hit it off. Betty's words are even plainer. Well, her father was an alcoholic, you know, and he beats Dulcie about and her mother. He was a bit soft on Stephanie. Stephanie, this is Michael's mother, was the clever one. She made him look better, you see. She was good. But Dulcie and her mother. Maybe this was one of the first times where Dulcie was put in a situation where she had to make a choice and live with the consequences. And Dulcie gave him every opportunity to to come at her because Dulcie didn't be quiet, you know. Dulcie stood up to him. And I didn't know, I knew that she wasn't happy there, but I didn't know the extent of this unhappiness because she never let on. As the years progressed, the situation got worse. But I think the relationship collapsed when he barred her from the house and she had to sleep on the stoop for a few weeks. And after that, she left home. Now, I don't know who collected her there and Dulcie would never tell me this. Having been kicked out of her childhood home, Dulcie, who now was a young woman, went to live with another friend and began studying to become a teacher. But she had already learned a lesson that would echo throughout her life. Standing up for what is right comes at a price. And she had also learned to accept it. With the young Dulcie separated from her family, It is time to leave Cape Town and the years that shaped her. In the coming episodes, we will trace her journey further. But for now, let's jump ahead to the end of her life. We're going to Paris, where our reporter is trying to get access to a building behind a large green door that is locked. This is Rasmus Bits. It's late summer in Paris. I'm on the busy street of Rue de Petit, Ucurie. I've arrived without an appointment, and also 30 years late. Do you have a contact? Do you have somebody? Not at all. I just showed up here. Why? I'm at the address where Dorsey September was murdered. The large green door is locked, and nobody answers the doorbell. But I sneak through easily when somebody leaves to go for lunch. At the end of the passage, there are several other doors. The one that leads into the staircase where the ANC office used to be is also locked. But behind another is some sort of a design workshop 
when no one has ever heard about Dolce September. I'm not making film or anything, I'm making radio, so the only thing I really want is just to see what it looks like. But they know the code to the door. 1975. Okay. if it doesn't work. Thank you. The world has moved on many times since activists walked through the passage to visit the ANC here in the 1980s. Besides the fact that I'm certain nobody was blowing steam from electronic cigarettes here in 1988, it's hard to imagine how else it was different or what it was like to walk through here to meet Dulcie at her office at the end of the alley. But I don't have to imagine, because I know somebody who was there at the time. A retired school teacher, writer, activist and a friend of Dulcie September. Her name is Jacqueline de Rans. She still vividly remembers the first time she saw Dulcie 40 years ago. She was beautiful. She was uh, a colored woman, you see. Uh, she was tall and she had most astonishing eyes. She had dark eyes, you see, but not very dark, in fact, brown, shall I say, and with some gold points in it. And the thing is that when she was angry, and she was sometimes <laughs> angry, you see, those golden points just flashes, <laughs> you see. And it, it's, uh, it, it's very strange how well I remember her eyes. When the two activists met in 1979, Dulcie September was based in London. She came to France to speak at one of the many conferences the ANC used to campaign at. She was so passionate when she talked about the plight of young children under apartheid that I was really moved, you see. She could describe the, the, the situation of the, the children and the mothers, you see, with their dying children in their arms and that sort of thing with a very simple words but very moving words, you see. And I, I couldn't forget her. When Dorsey later moved to France to represent the ANC, Jacqueline, who's also a communist, began working with her, often as a translator, because Dorsey didn't speak French. Where they often met was here, in the back alley office that was the ANC headquarters for France, Luxembourg and Switzerland. Yes, it was right in the center of Paris, you see. It was on the fourth floor. Uh, it was just a flat turn into an office, in fact, you see, nothing else but that. It was not very big. Um, it was rather dark and it was, it was a sort of a beehive sometimes, you see, because whether we were a socialist, a communist, a trade unionist, a young student activist, woman from some uh, feminist movement or whatever, you see, all came to ask Dulcie, you know, what shall we do, and, and so on, you see, and ask her. So there was a lot of movement in that office. But on the morning of the 29th of March, 1988, the beehive wasn't buzzing yet. Dulcie was alone when she collected the mail, opened the door, and walked into the building at the end of the alley. Did she sense something was wrong when the door behind her closed? I guess nobody will ever know. Maybe she was noticing the painters on the scaffolding who had been working on the building for a while. Maybe they were particularly noisy that morning. To go up to the office, you had the choice. Either you go up the stairs, but the stair was very narrow, you know. It was a, a, an old building. Or you had to take this very old uh, lift. The lift wasn't only old, it was also tiny. 
Still today, it's in the middle of the stairwell, surrounded by the winding stairs. That morning, Dorsey took the lift. And I'm gonna do the same. It is an extremely small lift. Barely fits one person. And as it set off, lifting her towards her assassins, Dorsey stood alone in the tiny enclosure. I don't know what she was thinking. I hope it was something that made her smile. But chances are she was leafing through the mail she held in her hand. I mean, after all, it was an ordinary day and Dorsey wasn't given a chance to choose her last thoughts as she passed first the second and then the third floor. Choosing one's last thoughts is a luxury reserved for those who see death approaching. Most likely, Dorsey didn't, as the lift came to a halt on the fourth floor and she opened the door. At this point, the picture gets even more blurry. The only ones who are present are either killed or killers. But we know that Dulcie was shot five times in the head with a silenced 22 caliber rifle. And we know she landed on the floor between the window and the lift in front of the door to her office. Here, her body was found surrounded by the mail she'd never read. And that's about all anybody can say with certainty. And not because nobody has tried to figure out what happened. So there is like eight people who have investigated Delcy's case. This is Evelyn Hrönig. She's a journalist and a writer. And she's written not just one, but two books about the murder of Dorsey September. None of the eight investigations she refers to has been able to figure out who did it. And while Evelyn says she has a good idea of who might have been standing in the Parisian staircase waiting for Dorsey with a loaded rifle, so far she's neither the proverbial or the actual smoking gun. Um, I, it's speculation. But what she does have is a compelling set of facts. Somebody comes in, uh, shoots her with five bullets in the head and manages to leave a very crowded office in a very crowded street in the center of Paris without the police ever having any clue <laughs> what went on there. Besides the journalist, the South African Truth Commission, the French police, the South African police and several other investigating authorities haven't found out who pulled the trigger and left Dorsey lifeless on the floor outside her office that morning. And we'll get back to that question, the question of why nobody has found anything. But we can't promise you that we'll name the assassin by the end of this series. And that's partly because the places that might lead us to the trigger man, the intelligence agencies in France and South Africa, are evasive. But also because we don't think the person pulling the trigger necessarily is the most important man to find. Because an assassin, almost by definition, is an extension of the gun he holds. He's a tool, not a cause. We believe there's another question that's more important to investigate. And that question is why. The answer to this isn't simple, but it can be pieced together by starting with the fragments found by Open Secrets in their years of archival research. Fragments that form pieces of a dark and complicated puzzle that we're trying to piece together while the people who remember Dorsey September are still alive. 
The scene of Dulcie's murder is at the center of a spiraling staircase. It is also in the center of a spiraling story, beginning, in a way, in Athlone on the Cape Flats in the 1930s. From the center, we will follow Dulcie's life and the leads we have to find out why she was murdered. This series is based on the book Apartheid, Guns and Money. It is written by Henny van Fieren from Open Secrets. The next episode is The Spies. Who did they think were killing these ANC people? Did they think it was the fairies? You have been listening to the first episode of the Sound Africa podcast series, They Killed Dalsi. It is made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. For a full list of who supports our work, go to soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za. Thank you.